Turn, if you would, this morning to Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14 and down through verse 36 this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Scripture says, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. But these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. My, moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. This chapter records for us the coming of, yes, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He arrived suddenly. He arrived spectacularly. He arrived as a fulfillment of Scripture, a fulfillment of Pentecost. You see in this chapter, the beginning, when it says, when the day of 
Pentecost had come or when it was being fulfilled. This is the fulfillment of that feast the Lord had commanded long before. What were the signs of his coming? The sound of a rushing mighty wind, the appearance of tongues of fire resting on each of the disciples gathered, enabling them to speak in intelligible messages in praise to God in known languages that they had not previously learned. It's the miracle of speaking in tongues. They were speaking in the languages of the people that are mentioned there in this chapter, starting in verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and it goes through the whole list. They said in verse 11, we hear them speak, excuse me, we hear them in our tongues or our languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And the response to to that is verse 12, amazement, great perplexity, wonder, what does this mean? Some said these men are drunk or full of sweet wine, they're mocking. Others just pondering what had just happened there in Jerusalem. Well, what we're seeing is the first formal witness of the witnesses. That's what we've been reading as we've been reading the book of Acts about Christ's command to them that they would be witnesses, that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them for witness. And now the Spirit has come, and on the day that he comes, they are empowered for witness. And as they witness, Of course, they are witnesses of the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. And so they have the opportunity to give witness to what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And as Peter takes the leadership, as he many times did in the Gospels, by speaking first and acting first, he does so here. And he is the one to answer these questions. What does this mean? And obviously he has to answer the charge of drunkenness. And as he does so, as he answers the question, he is armed with scripture. You can look and I don't know if your Bible has scripture quotations in all caps. Mine does. And you can see that the message from verse 14 down through verse 36 contains a number of passages of scripture. Peter apparently is quoting outright these passages that explain what's taking place. As he details these texts of scripture that speak of the pouring out of the spirit, the resurrection, promise of the Messiah to reign on David's throne, uh, his ascension into heaven, his being seated at the right hand of God. This is a scripture-filled sermon. It is a sermon focused on Jesus, and certainly the message, as it concludes, has a response of repentance and faith. That's Peter's call to the crowd, and it results in salvation, salvation of thousands. Verse 41 says that there were 3,000 souls added to these disciples on this day. What a wonderful day, and as the church has its beginning as the spirit comes 
here's the inaugural sermon, you might say. Obviously, Jesus had preached many times to his disciples. They had preached as well, but this is, as God is pouring out his spirit, this is his opportunity, Peter's opportunity to give witness. And it's an inspired explanation of the events of this day. There's an introduction. I believe you look at the sermon, if you were going to outline the sermon, and there's an introduction, there's a main body of the message, and then there's a conclusion, an application at the very end, starting in verse 37. And we're going to look at, Lord willing, the introduction and the body of the sermon today. And I trust the Lord will use this in our hearts, in every heart. This is a message of truth. For the believer, the preaching of the gospel is a blessing. It's the power of God. Of course, it's the power of God to salvation. If someone does not believe, the message of eternal life is in this sermon. Because it focuses on Jesus and what he's done and who he is. In the introduction of the sermon, verse 14, scripture tells us here, Luke tells us, that Peter took his stand with the 11. By this time, based on chapter 1, we know that Matthias has taken the place of Judas. They stand together as a united witness to the truths that Peter is going to proclaim. Jesus had said that they would be his witnesses, and now Jesus has in a very formal way, given them an opportunity to stand as witnesses for him to the very city, the very people that crucified him. And of course, to the Jewish nation of which Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, as he raises his voice to speak to this crowd that's assembled, we don't know how many, but many came and they're locations of where they're from are detailed there in the previous verses. And by the end of the day, if 3,000 are saved, there's a lot of people listening. Peter's raising his voice. I doubt he had a microphone, but he's proclaiming to them and he addresses them. Notice in verse 14, middle of the verse, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem. The term that Peter uses there, men of Judea, I don't believe just limits their location, but it actually is speaking about their ethnicity. So these are the Jews that he's speaking to, some of whom came from far away, others who, as he says there, you who live in Jerusalem, others who were there as uh, dwellers in the city of Jerusalem, they made their home there. As he addresses them, he gives a formal call for them to hear what he's about to say when he says, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Pay attention and listen up. And that's a statement that often began letters or other speeches. You can find sometimes in the book of Acts that same formula, let it be known to you. For instance, Peter and John, as they're at the temple, just a couple chapters later, when the question is, how did this man who has never walked, how is he healed? Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. So it's a message 
and a declaration that he wants everyone to hear. This isn't just for the people of Jerusalem. It's for everyone. It's for the Jewish nation. It's for those who are living there during this time. Mark my words, you might say in the vernacular today. Give heed to my words. And he answers the charge of drunkenness. That's the charge that most recently had come to their ears and may be the catalyst for why Peter spoke up and quickly spoke up. Verse 13, others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. And before he gets into the message, he argues that this is just the third hour of the day. This is just nine o'clock in the morning. This isn't a time for people to be drunk. He's directly contradicting their supposition. It does seem that this actually was the explanation of some. That this speech that they were hearing from these Galileans and what they were doing appeared to be the speech of a person who was under the control of some substance. They were actually under the control of the spirit. I don't believe that means they were out of control, but based upon their speech, these mockers believe that they had somehow lost control and they're speaking unintelligibly. Peter has to answer that. The day, if you look at even the parable of Jesus about the vineyard owner who went out during the day, he went at the third hour, he went at the sixth hour, he went out at the ninth hour, he went out at the eleventh hour, and every person that he hired at whatever time of day, he paid the same. Jesus had a lesson through that parable, but that parable actually illustrates that at the third hour, nine o'clock, the sixth hour, noon, three o'clock in the afternoon, and then the eleventh hour, just before the end of the working day, uh, that's how they structured their day. So this is nine o'clock in the morning. That's when God, Christ, poured out the Spirit. And that's when all of this transpired that we see early in the chapter. And Peter, in addition to saying, these men are not drunk, and I do want you to listen to what I have to say, he then proceeds to assert that what is taking place was prophesied some 800 years before through the prophet Joel. If you look at the timing of the prophet Joel in the Old Testament, it does seem that he prophesied around the time of King Joash, would have been familiar with Athaliah. There was a locust plague that had taken place during Joel's day, and Joel in his prophecy prophesied of a time coming that would be like a locust plague, but it would actually be an invading army. And if you read through the prophecy of Joel, that becomes the dominant focal point and thought. And the call there for God's people is to, in light of what they've seen in terms of this plague, and in light of what God is saying is coming, they need to repent and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But in the midst of God's grace to them during that time and his prophecy through Joel, there was a prophecy that God in the last days would bring restoration to the nation of Israel. And notice Peter quotes it from verse 17 and down through verse 21. I'm not going to ask you to turn back to Joel, 
but you can see the quotation begins when Peter says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, and it goes all the way down to verse 21, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The people had asked, what does this mean? What is taking place? What is going on? Why are these people speaking in these languages? And Peter is explaining here, this is, verse 16, what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And this is where I believe he begins the body of his sermon. He starts quoting scripture. He explains what is taking place. He explains that ultimately the reason that this is happening on this day is that Jesus has ascended into heaven and he has poured out his spirit. This demonstrates that Jesus is both Lord and also the Messiah. Now, that's a simplification because obviously we have a lot of text between verse 17 and the, and the end of his sermon in verse 36. We're going to go through it and we'll just take our time to consider what is being said here, both by Joel and eventually by David and then David again and then David again and then David again. Some of what Peter is going to talk about, he had heard Jesus teach about. Some of what Peter is talking about, he must have come to learn maybe during that time when Jesus had risen from the dead and was instructing his disciples. So the Lord has poured out his spirit is the explanation, I believe, based upon verses 17 through 21. This is what's taking place. This is why these people are speaking this way speaking of the wonderful works of God in all these different languages. It's in keeping with this promise, again, uttered hundreds of years before. Notice it was a divine promise. It's not merely Joel. It says in verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Through the prophet means that Joel is the agent or the means by which this prophecy is coming to Israel, but ultimately it's coming from God. And God, of course, is the speaker. Verse 17, it says, and it shall be in the, in the last days. God says. This is one of those places in scripture where you can see the dual authorship, where Peter talks about in Second Peter, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Joel, being a prophet, would say, hear the word of the Lord, and he would proclaim the word of the Lord. And one of the things that he said that eventually made it down into his written work is this message to Israel. We find scripture to be a divine product superintended by God, written by the human writer, but protected from error because God is breathing it out and superintending over the process. And this is a, pro a promise about the last days. That's what begins verse 17. It shall be in the last days. And the last days have begun. And for those who knew what God had said in the Old Testament, they, of course, knew the promises of restoration. They knew the promises that God had made. They knew the promise of the Messiah. And now those promises are coming to a fulfillment. They certainly did in the life and ministry of Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through a son. That was the fulfillment of scripture. And 
many places in the Gospels, you can see the fulfillment of Scripture. Well, that's in a period of time that could be described as the last days. The last days before what? What's the time reference here? Well, Peter, as he quotes Joel here, refers to it. Notice in verse 20, it says, the sun will be darkened, uh, turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So it's the last days before the day of the Lord. And if we had to study the day of the Lord, we'd be here for a while. Because as you look at the Old Testament descriptions of the day of the Lord, you see the day of the Lord as a day of gloom and doom and judgment. But you also see the day of the Lord as a day of victory and joy and celebration. Obviously, it's the day of the Lord. So you know who does the judgment and you know who gets the victory. It's not a single day, a 24-hour day. It is a period of time when God intervenes in human history in such a way that he makes his person, his presence, unmistakable to all the inhabitants of the world through his judgment and through his power and glory and his reign. And it's a wonderful thing to anticipate the great and glorious day. But prior to that day, in the last days, what is God going to do? Well, he says, and he says it twice here, that he's going to pour forth his spirit. Notice the emphasis on that. Verse 17, it should be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Verse 18, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. So there's a promise of the coming of the Spirit. Now, we know that the Spirit of God was active in the Old Testament, especially in the period of the judges, even before in the time of Moses. In the time of judges, the Spirit would come upon a person or clothe himself with a person, and he would accomplish great things. That's where you see the life and ministry of Gideon, of Samson, of Jephthah, all of whom as judges of Israel and saviors of Israel, deliverers of Israel, the Spirit of God empowered them. And of course, they're kings. Saul was empowered that way. David was empowered that way. Prophets were empowered that way. Occasionally, a priest is mentioned as being empowered by the Spirit, but it was individuals, it was task-specific, and it wasn't always that the person who received the power of the Spirit would keep that through their life. I think that's evident when David says in Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me after he's sinned against the Lord. And the spirit of God had been taken from Saul because of his sin. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was selective. It was purposeful for an individual, but you can see based upon Joel's prophecy that it goes far beyond that in this time and based upon God's promise. Verse 17 says, it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all, and the word there is translated mankind, but it's all flesh, all flesh. Without discrimination, look at the specificity, sons and daughters. Young men, old men, 
bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. So here, and I mentioned even in introducing this the last time, that what is taking place is that God is not discriminating in terms of who he's pouring out his spirit upon. They must be his servants. They must be his people. This is not on unbelievers. It's on believers, but it's on all believers. Again, sons, daughters, young men, old men, bond slaves, both men and women, I believe the collection of terms there helps us to see that it's really every person that God is empowering by his spirit. He's pouring out his spirit upon. And then there's activity. The spirit doesn't come to do nothing. He comes, and as he comes, he produces prophecy. He produces speech. You can see that even with the reference to visions and dreaming dreams, those visions or dreams that came to a person was not merely for the person themselves, it, or the, themselves. it was for the reception of that and then the deliverance of that to someone else. You can see through in this section, verse 17, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Verse 18, on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they will prophesy. They shall prophesy. They're going to speak forth what God has given them to say, and then he's going to empower them. One person defined prophecy as the reception and subsequent public declaration of parentheses, usually verbal revelation. Such revelation is normally spontaneous, and the subsequent declaration is normally immediate. So what's taking place on this day is the first verses of this chapter. These disciples did not wake up in the morning thinking that they were going to say the things that they said. It was God's spirit coming upon them and empowering them and directing them to speak these words. Obviously, in their case, it's speaking in other languages. This writer goes on to define or express a, a definition of prophecy. He says, regardless of the novelty or familiarity of its content, the speaker conceives it, that is the prophecy, to be revealed truth rather than the results of his own thought process. Prophecy might include, but was not limited to, the prediction of the future. It might equally be unsolicited guidance, exhortation, or remonstration. The idea is a rebuke. It was not normally the basic proclamation itself, but might commonly be some application of its principles to a particular situation. Now, I want to just draw attention to the content of what is being said by these ones who are prophesying or speaking in tongues. Look back at verse 11. After the list of all of the places that people came from in which they're hearing their own language, notice it says Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So this is not a proclamation of the gospel. We don't know exactly what, doesn't describe the content in detail other than to say they're talking about the mighty deeds of God. The God with whom these Jews would have been familiar. They believed in God. They're hearing people speak to them who they knew did not learn their language in their own language, and they're talking about God. 
how could a Galilean be speaking Arabic? Well, it's God. It's the Holy Spirit who has been poured forth, and these Galileans are now prophesying. And Peter, as that occasion develops, is now able to explain both what God is doing, and then he's able to preach the gospel. But before he preaches the gospel, starting in verse 22, I want you to notice the last couple of verses here in this section of his sermon. In addition to the mention of the Spirit being poured out and the result being prophecy, there are also accompanying miraculous signs. Now, I say accompanying. In terms of the prophecy, they are accompanying there's a question about the timing. Because when Peter says what he says here, some conclude that when Peter quotes this section, verses 19 and 20, that things have happened or things are going to happen in the context here that we didn't see recorded in the text. And what I mean by that, well, look at verse 19. I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So based upon the context, Peter's explaining that there's prophecy taking place, the speaking in tongues. Was that accompanied on this day by these other things as well? It's not recorded. Some argue that based on, one, on what Peter is saying, that it actually goes back to the time of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. In other words, the wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Did that take place during the life and ministry of Jesus? And you just think about the life and ministry of Jesus. What took place? in the heavens above. The sky did darken. The sun did not shine its light when he was on the cross. There was a great darkness over the land. There's a sign on the earth below when the veil of the temple is split from top to bottom when Jesus died. The rocks are rending. The tombs are open. People are in their tombs, resurrected, they came out after the resurrection of Christ, but they were alive by the sheer power of the resurrection or the, the death of Christ. And so you can see why some would argue that what is taking place, Peter is saying that in the last days, these things are going to happen. Some of them already have happened. And I don't, wouldn't diminish those signs. They certainly were divine signs. Is that the only thing? that corresponds to the things that Peter says here, that Joel says back in the ninth century BC. In other words, wonders in the sky above, that's plural. Signs, that's plural on the earth below. And what is blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Is that warfare and the consequences of warfare? And obviously sun being turned into darkness, we didn't see any reference to the moon being turned into blood. And that's just a figurative uh, statement, kind of a figure of speech for the darkness of the moon, has that happened? And I, as I 
study this passage. I study other places in the word of God. I don't think what Peter is saying is that all of these things have happened on this day. Certainly in verses 17 and 18, that is taking place. There is prophesying. There's prophesying in another language, but it's still prophesying, another language than the persons had learned, but it was still prophesying. With regard to these wonders in the sky, signs on the earth, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, notice the the timing of that. It says before, verse 20, the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And that's yet some ways off. We don't have a starting point for that other than as the word of God speaks about times of judgment in the future, as Jesus spoke about times of judgment in the future, he did say, for instance, Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is speaking of something yet future, I think that's where we have to place the events that are described there in verses 19, 20, at least in their fullness. Could something have already happened? Yes, and I think it did with Jesus' death upon the cross. But in terms of all of the things and all of the wonders and all of the signs, there's still an anticipation of that. But the Spirit's coming. That's the beginning of that. In the last days... I'm going to pour forth of my spirit, and they'll be prophesying. And then eventually there will also be these signs, miraculous, amazing signs, signs given by God, and such signs that would cause a person to fear and wonder, am I under the judgment of God? Is God going to judge me? But if you're afraid, if you're fearful, don't miss this message that comes at the end of Joel's prophecy. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If what God is going to do in the future as he pours out his wrath and then reigns victoriously in this world, if that's a cause of fear for you because you do not know him, you have not believed on him, this message is for you today. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. You'll be rescued. You'll be protected from his wrath. You'll be one of his own. You'll find refuge in his power and his protecting arms. So this promise of salvation that Peter details there in verse 21 is a promise that is, of course, of relevance on this very day that he's proclaiming this. And certainly it was in Joel's day. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that possible even for Gentiles? Well, you look through the Old Testament, you can see that, yes, God did save Gentiles in the Old Testament. He saved those among his own people who called on his name. And you know what? If there's somebody in the audience here today who needs to call on Jesus' name to be saved, he will answer that prayer this very day. He will save you. You need saving. All of us need saving. All of us have sinned against God. We have broken his law. We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. 
We deserve, because of his greatness and glory, because we've sinned against him, we deserve judgment and punishment forever. But God has provided a way, and Peter's about to proclaim it. There is a message of salvation, and it's found in a person. It is Jesus. Notice where Peter goes in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. It's Jesus the Nazarene. That's the one in whom salvation is found. And Peter, beginning here, focuses on Jesus, and as he continues to preach to these people. He explains the death, the resurrection, according to the plan of God, that this is a fulfillment of scripture, that this can't be David that the scripture was talking about. It must be Jesus. And God raised him up again. And we 12, the 12 of us, are witnesses to his resurrection. Consider the significance of that. These are the 12 witnesses who saw Jesus' life and ministry, who saw his death, who saw him resurrected. They met him. They they ate and drank with him. They saw him ascend up into the heaven, and they knew when he left that he said, wait at Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, and now he's poured out the promise, and here they are to give testimony to Jerusalem. The very people, by the way, who put him to death. Look how Peter proceeds. Next point in his sermon, he explains, first of all, that this, what's going on is due to the Holy Spirit. That it's a part of a period of time, which you might call the Messianic era. The time in which Christ is reigning. He's going to come to reign for a thousand years, but he has poured out his spirit Upon those on this day, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. Look at verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. If they weren't listening before, Peter says, listen up. If you weren't listening before, listen up. This is important. Jesus, the Nazarene. I believe part of the reason he says that is because that's what Jesus had come to be known as. Jesus from Nazareth. It would have distinguished him from other Jesuses, or that name is Joshua. So you think of what names would be like in Israel. This is actually a common name. But to distinguish Jesus of Nazareth, this is the Jesus from Nowheresville, you could say. Nazareth was not a very big and important city. Remember what Andrew said, I believe, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is kind of a, just a nowhere. And Peter begins with a focus on Jesus the Nazarene. He doesn't say Jesus born in Bethlehem. Jesus the Nazarene places him in that location, which he was during the course of his ministry. He was known for that. This identifies him historically, identifies him geographically, you could say. And then in addition to his name and that uh, appellation, that, that, that statement about his being the Nazarene, he says, this is a man attested to you by God. This is Jesus the Nazarene who isn't just 
his credit is not just his own words and his actions. His actions are actually a testimony, a divine testimony. God has attested to this man. It says, a man attested to you by God. How did God do it? It says, with miracles and wonders and signs. Again, notice the emphasis on God, which God performed through him in your midst. This is God at work through Jesus the Nazarene. This person certainly was from God. Of course, we know based on the rest of the sermon, he is God. But Peter draws attention to what was obvious to all the people is that Jesus' life, someone said, was a blaze of miracles. It was a blaze of miracles. More than we could even all write down, John says. Very public miracles, aside from the ones that he did for just his disciples or things that he did in their presence that they were alarmed at and amazed by. Not all of these are as public as others. He turned the water into wine. Some people saw that. Not everybody did. He turned water into wine. He healed the nobleman's son, John 5. He fed 5,000 people from a few loaves and a few fishes. He walked on water. He healed a man who was born blind. This isn't LASIK corrective surgery. This is the Son of God actually giving someone sight who had never had it. And the most notable miracle in the book of John, the one that was performed close to Jerusalem, it was unmistakable. They could not deny it. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth after he had been dazed in the tomb, and suddenly he's at the door. Still in his grave clothes, fully alive. That was a testimony to Jesus by God in heaven that he was God's son. Peter says here, a man attested to you by God, accredited to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst. And he says, You know this. This is very public. This is no secret. This is who Jesus was. And then what's happened to him most recently in the eyes of the people was that he had been crucified. But how had he been crucified? This wasn't just an act of sinful people. This was God's Direct plan, notice what he says in verse 23. It says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is something that didn't happen as just a travesty of justice, which it was, but God delivered Jesus over. He delivered him over to those who were willing to take his life. Jesus was, you could put it this way, he was appointed to this in the sovereignty of God. The words here 
predetermined plan and foreknowledge suggests that God is sovereign. Foreknowledge doesn't just mean he knew it before, it's he determined it before. The same word is used in other places, such as Acts chapter 10. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God. This was an appointment. This predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, he delivered Jesus over. And when Jesus was delivered over, Peter then says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men. And so in the same verse that you have an emphasis on divine sovereignty, predetermination, foreknowledge, you also have human responsibility. It was their act. They are responsible. God will hold them responsible. So the crucifixion and death of Jesus was the outworking of a divine purpose and plan, but the crucifixion and death of Jesus was also perpetrated by the very people who are listening on this day, and they are responsible before God. That reference there in verse 23, at the end of the verse, to godless men, you might have in the margin, men without the law. I think what we're talking about is those who are Romans who actually put Jesus to death, but notice the responsibility doesn't just fall upon those hands. It also falls upon the you nailed to a cross. You nailed to a cross by the hands of another. This is a way of Peter really not trying to make a pun here, but he's 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 really putting He's nailing them to it. He's saying, you did this. Driving the nail. You're responsible. And so these who were there listening on this day, of course, they knew who Jesus was. They knew about his miracles. Now they know, based upon Peter's preaching, that God had actually delivered Jesus over to them to do what they did, but they're responsible for the crucifixion of this one that was sent by God and accredited by God. And notice Peter's next proclamation, verse 24, but God raised him up again. This very same one who had come, who had done all these miracles, who was then put to death, is now raised from the dead. And who did that? It's also God. God not only delivered him up, God also, deli- God also delivered him from death, raised him up again. And he uses a couple of images here in verse 24, putting an end to the agony or the pangs of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. There's an assertion of the resurrection, verse 24, God raised him up again. And then these two images to illustrate the power of God the necessity of the resurrection. The words there, putting an end to the agony of death or loosing the pangs of death is the idea of really giving birth. But in this case, it's death. Death could not keep Jesus from rising. It had to happen. It's like when a 
woman is carrying a child, eventually it has to happen. It also pictures death as holding Jesus in its grip. Look at the end of verse 24. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, he was held in its power. He did die. The nails that pierced his hands and his feet, the crown of thorns on his brow, the scourging he received prior to that, all of those things contributing that day to eventually his death, his giving up his spirit, and he did die and was buried. Death seemingly had the prince of life in his grip. But it's impossible for the prince of life to be held permanently in the grip of death. Long ago, I came across a little hymnal. And if nothing else, that hymnal was a blessing to me because of the hymns in the very back, one of which said, Blessed morning, whose first dawning rays beheld the Son of God. Arise triumphant from the grave and leave his dark abode. Wrapped in the silence of the tomb, the great Redeemer lay till the revolving skies had brought the third, the appointed day. Hell and the grave combined their force to hold our Lord in vain. Sudden, the conqueror rose and burst their feeble chain. This is the Lord of life. This is the creator of the world. This is the very son of God who gives life. Can you hold him in the grave? Of course not. He is risen. He's risen. It was impossible for death to hold him. So low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. But what does it say? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. The third stanza says, death cannot keep his prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's impossible for him to be held in the power and the grip of death permanently. And this is in keeping with Scripture. You see, Peter starts with Scripture, and as he makes assertions, he's then drawing attention again to Scripture. So look at verse 25. For, and that's an important word, sometimes translations omit that. But Peter's giving an explanation about the resurrection of Christ. For, because he could not be held in the power of death, because God had spoken. God had said something. Verse 25. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. The idea is great rejoicing. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you, referring to God, will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, if you read through Psalm 16, it's a psalm of confidence. 
in the Lord. David is proclaiming his confidence in God. He's saying, because he's at my right hand, for instance, verse 25, I will not be shaken. That's a wonderful thing to know that God is there with us. When he is with us, we can have confidence, encouragement, joy, hope, all those things. But one of the things that David says here that Peter draws attention to is that David says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. This is something about God and his relationship to the one that's being spoken of here. This person in God's plan would not undergo decay. His soul wouldn't be abandoned to, I I will use the, the explanation for Hades as the realm of the dead. The grave. God's not going to abandon my soul, verse 27 says, to that place. Now, if that's David talking, we got a problem. It might be a problem even just glancing around Jerusalem if you're listening to Peter on this day, because you look around Jerusalem and there's the tomb of David. The tomb of David was known. It was known by kings who knew that there was wealth placed in that deposit, and they got into those rooms at different times. Even Herod did, got into those rooms and took some of that wealth out. They never disturbed the actual graves, but they knew where David was buried. And so it's possible, even as Peter is preaching, as he says what he says in verse 29, that it was clear and apparent that this scripture, based upon what is said here, it If it applies to David, it's not true. If it doesn't apply to David, then it could be true. Peter is so confident, he even says in verse 29, as he explains, he says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So that's obvious. This isn't David. But David said something else. Look at verse 30. And so because he was a prophet, that's something that we don't think of when we think of David, but Peter says it here and based upon all the Psalms that David wrote and even the content of those Psalms, it becomes apparent that David was a spokesman for God. He was a prophet. He delivered the word of the Lord. And as a prophet, he not only spoke, but he knew the promises of God. And it's not a prophecy, but his knowledge of one of the promises of God that's referenced there in verse 30. But look at verse 30. It says, so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. So Peter is actually expositing. He's he's explaining what God said, and he's explaining what God said in light of other passages. This is what we do when we look at Scripture. We look at this Scripture and this Scripture, and in this case, we've got four Scriptures that Peter's drawing attention to. The Scripture that he's drawing attention to there in verse 30 is from Psalm 132 verse 11, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not draw back of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. 
There's also a reference to the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel chapter 7. God had promised that one of David's sons would come and reign on the throne forever. How is that possible? Well, that son has to live forever. And Solomon died, and Rehoboam died, and just look at the genealogies in the Gospels, king after king after king after king after king died. But this king, who had no son, died, but he rose again. This king is the one who's going to sit on the throne forever. This king is the Messiah. Notice what he says there again in verse 31. He looked ahead, Peter says, and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ or of the Messiah. The one who had come to reign. So Psalm 16 was a prophecy of the resurrection of Christ. It fits with and is linked with the fact that David has a son who's going to come and sit on the throne forever. So he's linking scriptures. He's putting them together and showing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus had to rise from the dead in order that he might reign. It was impossible for him to stay dead because of what scripture said. And look at verse 32, this Jesus, this Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, the same one that God raised from the dead, this Jesus, God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And it's, it's hard to really get the full impact of what is going on here because we're talking about the very generation, the very people who both participated and witnessed the events of the crucifixion. And now here are witnesses of the resurrection. And there are 12 of them. And they all give testimony to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Matthias. 12 men who are now on record in a public celebration of Pentecost. I mean, it's a big event. The Spirit of God has just come, and now they're saying this Jesus whom you crucified, God has risen or raised from the dead. It was impossible for death to hold him. He is the Messiah. We're witnesses that he raised, that he was raised from the dead. And then Peter comes to a wonderful conclusion. Look at verse 33. Therefore, it's not just the resurrection but it's the exaltation of Jesus. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, he, this same Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus that you crucified, Jesus that rose up from the dead, Jesus has now ascended into heaven. He has asked from the Father. He's received the Spirit. He has poured out the Spirit. Jesus has done this, this Jesus. And there are witnesses to it. He says, which you both see and hear. And then he has to, again, go back to something David has said so that they understand rightly. Remember, Jesus, in his own ministry, drew attention to this text that he, he, he 
confounded those who were his opponents with this text? How could David speak to his son who was also his Lord? Look at verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh said to my Adonai. It's a definite indication of a of Trinitarian relationship between Yahweh and this other one that David calls his Lord. David is king, but he's serving a Lord who is his Adonai, who is different or distinct from, in that passage, from Yahweh. The Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It can't be David ascending into heaven. David died and is buried. He's not the one who's up there. Jesus is. Jesus is the one who poured out the Spirit. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, again, Jesus, both Lord, absolute master, and universal king. That's the idea behind the word Christ, anointed one. This universal king, this Jesus, and this had to pierce whom you crucified. You have sinned against him. You put him to death. You nailed his hands to the cross by the hands of godless men. You crucified him. He's the one doing what you're seeing today. What a sobering moment. And no wonder in the conclusion here, verse 37, and I'm not going to take the time to develop, but no wonder it says when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Knowing that they had acted against God, that they had crucified their own Messiah, that God had raised from the dead, what, what shall we do? We're in danger of judgment because of what we've done to God's own son if they came to believe it. And I do think there's, I do think there's a response of faith even in the question, brethren, what shall we do? Because they recognized that they were guilty before God, guilty of the very sin of crucifying the Messiah. And what's the response? It's a response for any sinner who comes to a place of conviction and God is working in their heart, what must they do? Peter says, verse 38, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a message God has given us in the, and it's, it's really hard to take it all in when you think about the history of the church and what's happening on this day. But what a wonderful message to emphasize the work of Christ and who he is and the necessity of his rising from the dead, the reality of his ascension into heaven and the fact that he is now Lord and Messiah before whom we must bow. And I'll just ask you today, have you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? And I can say without 
any fear of contradiction, Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord whether you confess him or not. But if you confess him and turn from your sins, there is forgiveness. There's full salvation promised to you. Just call upon the name of the Lord, and you'll be saved. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we bow before you, If there's anyone here today who does not know you, has not confessed Jesus as Lord, has not found refuge in his salvation, we pray that even today might be the day of their salvation. For those of us who do know you, Lord, we pray that we might be faithful to preach the message of the gospel. Grant to us, even today, Lord, And through this week, that we might be able to preach the good news to someone who does not know you. Use us, Lord, for your glory. Accomplish your work in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.